morning we are beginning a four-week series from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2. You can find that in the Pew Bible on page 807. And we're calling this series, The King of Kings Salvation Brings. We'll look again at Jesus' birth as we lead up to Christmas, and Matthew and Luke each give us different parts of this familiar story. Luke tells us about the shepherds, Matthew the wise men, but both Matthew and Luke include genealogies, long lists of names that detail Jesus' family history. And unless you are researching your own family, his, family tree, you might think this is terribly boring. Even those who love the Bible can be tempted to skip these parts. Lots of strange-sounding names that don't mean much to most of us, and just reading the passage can be a little tricky. So I've asked Logan to sing it for us. Puts the burden on me, huh? playful rendition of Jesus' genealogy. I hope not disrespectful. Um, These names matter because people matter, because history matters, because ultimately God's Word matters, and God's plan to save us matters. So apparently, Matthew and Luke uh, saw Jesus' family history as vital information, not just to the story of Jesus' birth, but to make the case that He is the Christ to convince us, readers then and now, to follow, to trust and follow Jesus as our Messiah, as our Savior. 
And really, that is the basis for the best and the truest kind of celebration of Christmas that I hope we're all headed toward uh, next month. So here's what we're going to be considering as we walk through Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. How does Jesus' family history give us cause to celebrate his birth? How does Jesus' family history give us cause to celebrate his birth? And I'm getting my outline uh, right from Matthew, the way Matthew frames the text. Now, Logan sang verses, essentially, a little paraphrase there, you, I think you recognize, uh, from verses 2 through 16. Uh, but look at verses on either side of that, verses 1 and 17. Verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, which you recognize as it goes forward that those are not his immediate father and grandfather. Those are generations before uh, him. But those are key points, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then the end of after the genealogy, after where Logan uh, wrapped up, verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon and to the Christ, 14 generations. Then it moves on there to the next story that we will uh, be in next week. Uh, because, of course, these folks had many descendants. What's, what makes Jesus the descendant that we need to focus on? Uh, but in the in our passage today, in this genealogy, Matthew gives us three touch points right there in verse 1. Abraham, David, and the deportation to Babylon, uh, uh, also described, and you heard uh, Logan sing it, the Babylonian captivity or the, the exile. All three of these, Abraham, David, exile, point to Jesus' identity and mission as the Messiah. So following Matthew, I hope to show you how important, how important that is to you, how Jesus' family history matters to your faith today in the present. So part one, son of Abraham. Jesus is the heir to God's promised blessing through Israel to the world. Jesus is the heir to God's promised blessing through Israel to the world. So at the simplest level, being a son of Abraham uh, simply means that Jesus was a Jew, ethnically speaking. And in our world today, of course, that can take us into a lot of different directions, politics, culture, of course, religion, race, prejudice, oppression, uh, other kinds of matters of history. But what is the significance of Jesus' identity as son of Abraham in the Bible, in, in Matthew's presentation of who Jesus is? Well, to get this, we have to go back to where Abraham enters the story not just in this book, but in the, the whole book the, book, the book of the Bible, and its first section, the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And in case you missed it, uh, Matthew has already pointed us to Genesis. In Matthew 1, verse 1, the word translated genealogy here, the book of the genealogy is actually in the Greek Genesis, a form of that word Genesis. And of course, the book, we, the book we have as Genesis, we call Genesis, gets its name from the account of the creation in the beginning, the Genesis. But you also find this same phrase in Matthew 1.1 repeated early and often in Genesis. Uh, for example, Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then it follows by giving you his genealogy of his descendants. Genesis gives us the origin of many things, including the people of Israel. 
Uh, many of you will know that, that to, you got to go back to Genesis chapter 12 and the first few verses there. I'll just read those quickly. You don't need to turn there. Just This is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, later known Abraham, uh, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, by God's declaration, by his promise, Abraham would be the forefather of a nation that came to be known as Israel. He said again, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, the reason why Matthew wants to make sure that we know that Jesus is descended from Abraham is so that we might look to Jesus for this blessing from God. Now, you might think, well, okay, is that that something I really need? Is that something I really want, a blessing? I mean, is that just kind of thing that old people say, you know, bless her heart, or, you know, after you sneeze, bless you, or, uh, you know, a few mumbled words before a meal, well, let's just just say a a blessing here. Uh, Well, if you follow the story of Genesis up Through that point in chapter 12 that I read about Abraham, you see God created a world with his blessing. And that meant it was positively bursting with life. An incredible variety of magnificent creatures set in in beautiful and perfectly hospitable environments. Everything that they need, every provision for, for family, for food, for flourishing. So that God finished creation just like you probably did when you, when you finished Thanksgiving dinner, just satisfied. Whew, that was good. Very good. That's blessing. And that's what we are still looking for today, all of us. We're all looking for, we just want to enjoy life with the kind of health and prosperity and security that allows you and your children and their children to thrive. That's just, that's what we want. That's what, that's what uh, every politician promises. That's what we're desperately searching for in our, our day-to-day work and our plans for the future. But the Bible tells us that the very first humans had that blessing, but they threw it away. They threw away the blessing because they abandoned God, disobeying him, seeking life and joy on their terms, not his. And so Genesis 3 tells us they and every generation since live under a curse rather than the fullness of God's blessing. Ultimately, that's why we have every uh, disease and disorder and disaster in our world. Every, Every cancer and conflict, droughts and death. How can we ever get back into the place of God's blessing? Well, ultimately, it would have to be God's doing, not ours, who's going to fix it. And, and God's plan, God had a plan. He, it started, he, he hints at it already even back in Genesis, the very same time that there is a curse pronounced, there is also the promised rescue. But, but God's plan and it took a, went to another level when God called Abraham. But it was never meant to end with him. Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, which Paul then says, offspring, singular, who is Christ. 
So, understand, Christ is the is the heir to God's promised blessings. But the God's plan doesn't stop, didn't stop with Abraham. It's not stopping with Christ either. Uh, that same chapter in Galatians. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, fixing the sin problem, uh, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Paul says, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So do you hear that? Paul Paul says the gospel was proclaimed all the way back in Genesis. The good news that every sin of anyone can be forgiven, how? Through faith in Christ. He's the one who brings us back into God's blessing, restoring our relationship with him, looking forward to to the day when we will live life as it was meant to be, as we were meant to be, bodies, minds, souls made whole in a creation, made new. And again, in that same chapter of Galatians, Galatians 3, the very end, we read, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You can be an heir. You seated here today can be an heir to the promised blessing if you belong to Christ, if you know him by faith. And if you, if you know him by faith, then Jesus' family history can be yours and all that comes with it. You can be an heir. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So today, are you are you broken? Are you empty? Do you mourn? Do, do you grieve? Do you feel, did, you, did, you, did, did it hurt to get out of bed this morning? Do, do you, are you discouraged at the prospects of what this week holds or the bills that you might not be able to pay or, or the, the way that you won't be able to celebrate the holidays like some other people that you wish you, you had all the stuff that they had or the family they had or the, the, the means to enjoy gifts like they do. If you feel that brokenness, that emptiness, then you need to see this is why Matthew gives us this genealogy to show us that Jesus has the credentials to be the Christ. And if he is the one who brings people into the blessing of God, and not just, again, not just the stuff of life, but into the blessing of knowing God and being at one with him once more if he is the one who brings people into the blessing of God, then we should put our faith, our hope in him and celebrate his birth. That was part one. Here's part two. Son of David. Jesus is the king descended from the royal line and will reign over all. As the son of David, Jesus is the king descended from the royal line and will reign over all. So, uh, Where we came from, of course, Abraham. Abraham to David is this section of the genealogy. Abraham lived a long life, had kids, became wealthy, but he was never really much more than a well-to-do nomad rancher. Uh, But there was another promise that God had made to him. This is from Genesis 17.6. This is uh, one that we don't remember quite as often as the sort of the land and the the offspring and the blessing. Genesis 17.6 says, God to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. That promise was repeated to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, when God gave him, Jacob, the new name Israel, 
And this promise of kings became even more specific when out of 12 of Jacob's sons, Judah was identified as the royal line. Genesis 49.10, the scepter, so a symbol of royalty, a scepter, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Interesting, peoples. Israel, yes, and more. Judah himself never became a king, but one of his descendants did. You trace, of course, through Matthew's genealogy, and you eventually get to David. And in so many ways, David seemed to fulfill the promise of a great king, a mighty warrior who defeated all of his people's enemies, bringing peace, who was said to rule with integrity of heart, 1 Kings 9.4, as a man after God's own heart, for Samuel 13.14. But the kingdom would not be fully realized under David or even under his son Solomon, also in the genealogy, though his early reign, Solomon's reign, was glorious. We, we heard the, the Dusing family read uh, earlier from 1 Chronicles 17 where, where God promised David that one of his descendants would know God as his own father and reign as king forever. And that, even though there were many kings that came after David in his line, that would really only be fulfilled in Jesus, the Christ. But you know, well, what's, what's some king of Israel to you? Why celebrate him today? And we're like, wait a minute, what, wasn't Jesus crucified before he took any throne? Well, you have to understand something of the whole sweep of the Bible story. This is not just about politics in the Middle East or, or which ethnic group has claim to the city of Jerusalem. This is about an even more fundamental issue that God created human beings to rule this world under his authority. That goes back to Genesis 1. Do you remember that original blessing? This is Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So dominion, not, not just that, you know, like we're the real king of the jungle kind of thing, you know, we're, we're the, the, the most advanced animal, uh, not, not that, but there is something of, a, of an authority of a rule that human beings are granted over God's creation. But that was lost when we fought a wrong kind of war of independence. We wanted to rule the world ourselves apart from God, and ever since, we fought each other in battles for control, in battles for supremacy. Whether you want to talk about interpersonal conflict or geopolitical war, we fought each other ever since. The, the biblical account of ancient Israel's ancient history illustrates this well. See, on one hand, God's people suffer under, at the hands of foreign tyrants and dictators from Pharaoh to Caesar uh, with many attackers and oppressors in between. And on the other hand, they suffer from, from some of their own bad, evil kings, some of whom are in this list, like Jehoram and Manasseh. Even some of the better kings in this list, like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, you read the stories and they are too are flawed. 
Or Josiah, who, who brought reform but could not stop his nation's spiritual, moral, and eventually political collapse. David, rather than being the first of many good rulers, ends up being one of a few good guys who never live up to his glory days. But no matter who seemed to be in power, the flawed, the failed, the terrible, or the terrifying, God's power prevails, he reigns above, and his promise is sure. That's what we need to see as we look at this genealogy. The Christ, or in Hebrew, Messiah, means God's anointed one. He is destined to be the king that we all are waiting for. Israel waiting for, oh yes, but he's the king we're, we're all waiting for. Revelation 11 15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And George Friedrich Handels added, Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. What is the extent of this kingdom? The world, Revelation says. How long does it endure forever and ever? Who will enter this kingdom? Uh, everyone? No. The, at the end of Revelation, chapters 21 and a, little, a bit of 23, or excuse me, 22 that I'll read, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever. That is, his servants and their king will reign together forever and ever. This is the happy ending of the Bible. One day God and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, are on the throne. His servants worship Him. They will reign with Him as intended at the very beginning of the story, the very beginning of the Bible, subduing the world, having dominion over it. In that kingdom, nothing unclean or accursed will be there. No, no poverty or pornography, no violence or viruses, nor no tornadoes or terrorism will be there. There should be, I would think, more than enough to make us excited about Jesus coming. Uh, anybody? Yeah, okay, I'm just checking. I mean, I don't know. You guys are happy with how things are. I, like, there's, there's more than enough to make us excited about the arrival of Christ. If the king has come, then the kingdom is, that's got to be right around the corner. Celebrate his birth. But this leaves us with an, a nagging question. Uh, I mean, well, maybe more than one. You're like, why not yet? Let's, let's come quickly, Lord Jesus. But but it should it should make us ask, will we'll, we'll, I get to enjoy that? Will I be able to enter the kingdom? If, if I am a sinner, a rebel against his reign, if I am among the unclean or the accursed that will not enter that beautiful, perfect place. Now, this takes us into the last part of our sermon. And the, the third point of emphasis in the genealogy given by Matthew, it's not actually a name uh, of, an, of a particular ancestor of Jesus. It's a tragic event in the history of the Jewish people, the deportation to Babylon, which we've said 
uh, is also known as the exile. So here's part three. After exile, Jesus is the Savior who will restore his people in spite of their sin. Jesus is the Savior who will restore his people in spite of their sin. So after a series of of evil rulers and generations of idolatry and sin among the people, we see what to the historian uh, is simply a big fish swallowing a little fish. Big Babylonian empire conquering tiny Judah, what was at that time just the southern remnant of the nation of Israel. But according to God, this was not merely the bad guys having their day. It was God giving his people over to judgment because of their sin. And so everything at that point in the story, everything about God's promises seems to be in jeopardy. His promise to make them a great nation, a numerous people, his promise to give them a homeland secure from their enemies, his promise to bless them, for for them to be prosperous and thriving. The glorious kingdom was lost when people abandoned God. And they were deported, physically removed from, uh, from God's promised land, his promised homeland of blessing, from the temple, the, the place of God's presence, among his, where God dwelled among his people. They were deported with Jerusalem and its temple in ruins. And, and what seems to be there, all their hopes, dreams, God's plans and purposes in ruins. The line of descent still continued, of course. I mean, you see it here in the genealogy. Uh, And when the exile comes to an end, Zerubbabel, the guy mentioned in uh, verses 12 and 13, uh, even though he was a part of the royal line, returned to Israel not as king, but as a provincial governor, somebody who had uh, middle management, not, not a king. He's middle management under the Persian Empire. Uh, not, this is not the kingdom of God. By the time we get to Jesus' birth, centuries later, uh, Judea is just a province in the Roman Empire, and, and their, their king, their puppet king, is not even fully Jewish, certainly not in David's line. Herod doesn't show up in this genealogy. And what that means is, even though the exile came to an end after 70 years, more than 500 years after that, with, should be noted, 400 years of silence, nothing heard from God through a prophet, and the kingdom was yet to be restored. Exile was over, but the kingdom was not restored. The people were not restored. The promises seemed to be at an end. If those in Matthew's day had finally reached the generation of Messiah, as, as Matthew was claiming here, you can see why, oh, there's, there's some time, it's time for some excitement and celebration. But how does it give us hope and a reason to celebrate Jesus' birth today? Well, there, there's one feature of this genealogy that I haven't highlighted yet, and it's connected, I think, to the same theme of exile, uh, removal from God's blessing because of our sin. Um, but there's another way we can see that that gives us hope. It's the, the presence of five women in this genealogy that point us to the theme of redemption. 
In these kinds of ancient genealogies, it was a single line list of fathers, which is mostly what we have here, except for Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth, verse 5, Bathsheba, although she's not referred to by name, she's called the wife of Uriah in verse 6, and of course, Mary in verse 16. Now, naturally, anytime, every time you see something like uh, Abraham was the father of Isaac, well, you know, there had to be a Sarah in there, right? There had to be a wife and a mother. Um, so if there were women at every stage, why mention these five women? Well, there seems to be two threads that connect them. And both have significance when it comes to the identity and mission of Jesus, particularly as a Savior from our sins. Now, first thread is that there seems to be something of sexual scandal in each one. Now, careful, not always sin, but there's at least enough for you to, to raise your eyebrows. Um, Tamar is probably, no, clearly the strangest one of the, of the lot. I won't even try to explain it all, though you can read it in Genesis 38. She's the widowed daughter-in-law of Judah who Judah then sleeps with her when she poses as a prostitute. You can read it in Genesis 38. But here's the thing. That's how the line continues. Okay. Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, um, not non-Israelite, but she helped the Israelite spies and was spared in the conquest and ended up marrying an Israelite. And that's how the line continues. And Ruth, also widowed, seemed to throw herself at older, wealthy Boaz in, the, in a middle-of-the-night proposal that seemed more like a proposition uh, from a certain way of looking at it. Uh, that's how the line continues. Bathsheba is infamous for being part of David's greatest moral failure, not just sexual immorality, but an abuse of power and cold-blooded murder. And that's how the line continues. We'll, we'll talk about the scandal that swirled around Mary next week. Now think about it. This is the kind of family history that you don't bring up at holidays. Or if you do, you're going to get kicked under the table. Like this is not, these are the skeletons in the closet. These are the, this is the dirty laundry. Now follow me carefully. Not the women. The women are not the dirty laundry here. Frankly, the Bible represents all of them as heroes. But by including these women, Matthew intentionally highlights what most want to cover up, the, the great and grievous sins of, of big names like Judah and David. And, and then besides that, besides that thread of the, the sexual scandal in, in the family history, the other thread that seems to connect these women is that besides Mary, each of these first four women were foreigners in one way or another. Tamar and Rahab are both Canaanite women. Ruth was a Moabite, famously, and Bathsheba married to a Hittite. So as non-Israelites, they were, they were outsiders. They were aliens to God's promise. Means they, they really weren't in line to inherit the promised blessing. But after exile, the Christ will come to bring his people home. And not just his people but all people who turn to him in faith. 
God redeems and restores from exile. He brings sin, from sinners from being alienated from God to being welcomed, reconciled in fellowship with God, from foreigners to family. Do you understand what this means? I mean, not, not just that you can be forgiven and brought into the blessing, but understand the implications of this aspect of this genealogy. There is nothing in your family history done by you or done to you that keeps you from the grace of God that is offered to you in Christ. We're thankful for that today. See, if the, if the ugliest sins in Jesus' family history could not thwart God's promise, could not derail God's purpose, if Jesus came precisely to redeem sinners and to restore those who were alienated from him, don't you think he can help you? There's no one sitting in this room that he cannot reach, no one that is too far from his saving power. Look at this genealogy. Look at this mess. This is how the line to Messiah continues. If you, if you pressed pause on, in any number of places or people in this story where there was a horrible sin or painful consequences of their sin, you might have given up on God's plan of salvation. You might say, it's over. It's done. What, what, can, what can redeem or restore this this situation, what can, what can save me? Who would want to accept me, take me? This is going nowhere but down. Even this, this line seems to, to be going nowhere but ending up, up in obscurity and failure and death. But that's not true. It was always still heading toward the one who would save them from their sin, who came in spite of their sin, who endured the consequences of their sin on the cross before he took the crown as heir, as king, as savior. So today, when we, when we turn to Christ, when we trust him to be the heir that, bring, that can bring us into God's blessing, to be the king that, that brings us into God's kingdom that will ultimately one day rule over all, not just Israel, but the world over us. To be the, when we trust Christ, turning to him to be the savior who brings us into forgiveness and re restoration and reconciliation, then, here's the beauty, you and I can be a part of the continuation of the genealogy, the continuation of Jesus' family history into the future. Peter, one of Jesus' followers, wrote this, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In this genealogy, you could look at it as fail, one failure after another, one death after death after death. But in Christ, the future history is redemption and life after life 
after life. If you know Jesus this way, you and I have every reason to celebrate his birth and to look forward to his return. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I am confident that each of us here have something in our own family history that we could wish never happened, never talked about, that we have little hope that could ever be redeemed. And whether it is something that was done bef before us, something done to us, something done by us, something that we have done, God, we pray that you would rewrite the story. That you would take even the darkest of threads and weave them into something bright and beautiful through your Son, our Savior. Lord, give us that faith and that joy and hope in this season and always. In Jesus' name, amen.